Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. Part of my core mission for the Edge Dwellers Cafe is to provide a platform for important discussions around mental health and neurodiversity and to amplify voices from within neurodivergent communities. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome my friend and colleague Claire Kearns to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Claire is a staunch neurodiversity advocate. She's a writer and social media content creator who's published across multiple genres on platforms through magazines, newspapers, university press and student publications. Claire and I developed our professional relationship through her studies in the International Relations Program at La Trobe University at both undergraduate and then master's levels. When I first started teaching Claire, neither of us were aware that we were neurodivergent. So the evolution of our relationship is entwined with our respective emerging awareness of our neurodiverse reality. While we've come from different places and have had very different experiences, this discussion is the culmination of our common bond in the neurodiversity movement. Earlier this year, Claire won the La Trobe University Excellence Academy inaugural art competition for a poem about her experiences as a neurodiverse student at university. In our discussion, we talk about the poem and its inspiration. We also discuss inclusive practice for disability and neurodiversity, token representation in university management processes, learning and accessibility during COVID lockdowns, growing up with undiagnosed neurodivergence, surviving domestic violence and the ongoing impacts of trauma, and finding common ground across political divides. Given the content matter, our discussion does cover topics that will be sensitive to some listeners. See the chapter list in the show notes for when in the podcast we touch on the more sensitive topics. Before Claire and I get chatting, a quick call to action. You can support the podcast by clicking the like or subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. Leave a review too if you're feeling suitably inspired. You can also help support the production of the podcast by making a one-off monetary contribution of any amount via the PayPal link on the website. See the show notes for details. But now, it's time for my conversation with Claire Kearns. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. Claire Kearns, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Thank you for having me, Ben. What does it mean to you to be an Edge Dweller? So my life has been lived in two parts, like before returning to higher education and after. So I would say that the journey that I am on is like probably tied to the meaning of Edge Dweller for me. 
in the context of our discussion, I think it's a good lead-in one. In in other interviews, I've just asked it at the end, but for this one, I think it's uh, a good starting point. So the next thing I wanted to ask was about the sensory cognitive experience of recording today of doing this discussion. So it's a little bit weird, right, because my entire world was like this. I spent my honours year on a speakerphone on a mobile phone, right? shuffled around tables and forgotten about half the time. Halfway through my honours year, they just stopped ringing me. I was supposed to be on Zoom, but they didn't know how it functioned. My then supervisor was supposed to contact me on Zoom and, like, didn't contact me. So suddenly I'm thrust into a world which is 10 times more accessible to me because I can have conversations and participate in stuff like this, which is why I probably badgered you about, like, let's do this. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm taking every opportunity I'm well enough to take whilst this lasts because I know that as soon as it goes back to, like, COVID normal, it's all going to go away for me. Doing what I can while I can. <laughs> That's a really important point. You know, with the Zoom era, this has opened doors to participation that weren't there previously. What's the difference in the in the sensory or cognitive experience of, of having a discussion or participating in a class through Zoom, through this online format, versus actually being in the room? What's the difference for you? Being a part of stuff is, like, huge. Like, getting to know people, like, even though it's only virtually at the moment, it's really massive for me. I'm no longer isolated. And I think one of the biggest things in COVID that was difficult for me has been I'm suddenly thrust into a situation where I don't have like my lawn bowls team. I don't have all the extra little outings. Like I, I like to hike a lot, stuff that I can't do. My world, I always thought it was pretty small little bubble, but it's even more. And it's reminded me of my childhood quite a lot where it was just myself. And I didn't speak for most of my childhood. So now suddenly being put back into that, it's like a grief kind of process or an awareness kind of process of going. And the panic hasn't been good because it's like, oh, my God, I don't want to go back. It's felt like regressing in a way. You know, so like there's positives and then there's, there's negatives. I'd say the positive of this sensory environment has been I can do more or be included more, which is actually like really, really big. It's one thing that's actually kind of kept me sane <laughs> or saner, but that the environment in itself, it's so artificial. So, Yeah. One of my personal reasons for doing this podcast is to get better at having one-on-one -on -one discussions like this and to be able to talk off the cuff a little bit more because I find that really difficult uh, with my short-term memory recall and social awkwardness. And so I want to challenge myself and put myself in a position where I can try and get better at that and be in an environment where I can have one-on-one -on -one discussions which is more comfortable for me rather than being in a really crowded social setting, which yes. is more overwhelming. I get that because to me, you don't seem socially awkward. You seem like smarter, more organised, like you've got a job, like you've got like 
it all going on. See, we make assumptions about other people. So to me, you don't seem socially awkward because, like, look at your podcast. You've already interviewed, like, six or seven people. So you must know six or seven people. (laughs) And for me to talk to six or seven people might take me a while. I think that we think, like, in our brains we think, that other people judge or or whatever us or perceive us in a certain way. But I don't think that other people do. I think it harks back a lot to me for high school particularly. When I was very young, I so I come from an academic family. I was always last, but like but I was sort of seen as a bit of a late bloomer rather than, you know, like, you know, there there being something deficient. But by the time I got to high school, I was socially ostracised because I couldn't thrive in that environment. So I'd gone from a smallish primary school to a very large high school. And, like, the 90s were pretty brutal. Anyway, (laughs) it wasn't like today where you, you know, many assemblies and well-being sessions on why you can't bully people but like yeah like social awkwardness it, it's it's something that once you think that you are because of high school no matter how far you come you don't really perceive yourself that way like with this poem that we were talking about earlier someone said to me like they shared it on their page and they went oh it's the fabulous Claire Kearns and I'm thinking fabulous me like I've done nothing for a year I'm letting everybody down the whole team and somebody thinks I'm fabulous <laughs> you know? like it actually wasn't you it was one of the um female staff members but yeah it was weird yeah that stuff from childhood and from when you're a teenager they're patterns that are extraordinarily hard to break aren't they of how you see yourself and value yourself there's nothing nothing wrong with us, but that imprint from how other people react to us and treat us is very hard to get out of. And, you know, I'm still grappling with that. Uh, a lot of our peers in the community are grappling with that too. So when I first started back at La Trobe, I did not realise that I even had a disability because I had just been, like I went to regular schools and I had a regular career. and from a high achieving family, I think that, or maybe it was the era. I don't know. My son went to a pediatrician more times in the first month that he was alive than I ever went to. Well, I never saw one. So I don't know whether there were just less pediatricians or, you know, it was BMX era. (laughs) Like dust yourself off, you know, you'll be right. Like you probably only saw doctors when something was broken. I think I was just seen as weird, horrible, antisocial. I think when I was a teenager that, that there was some sort of like substance abuse or something like that was going on, but it was like very vague as to what was wrong with me. So I thought there was always something wrong with me and I sort of lived that inbuilt narrative which led me in a way to actually end up in a domestic violence situation because I didn't have a lot of self-esteem 
still don't, but there's a lot more. <laughs> there was a hell of a lot more. I had this incident where I bumped into a guy who used to bully me, right? And when I say I was bullied, I was like massively like the most bullied girl in high school. And this guy gets out of his Woolworths delivering truck and goes, Claire Kearns, like we're some old friend. And it was a very awkward situation, fortunately, because of COVID restrictions, couldn't talk long as he made his delivery. But afterwards I took away, and not that there's anything wrong with being a delivery driver, but I thought to myself, so I learnt in a few minutes that this guy never married, never had kids, never did anything after year nine, lives at his brother-in-law's in like a caravan out the back. And this guy that had all this power over me in my brain for all that time, he's actually not like that powerful. <laughs> Fortunately, I bumped into someone that broke the curse a bit. Yeah, and I, that's a clue, isn't it? Like the people that bully us often, they're externalising their own insecurities and pains and traumas that have, really have nothing to do with us. And coming to terms with that, with that truth as well as our own truth is, is part of this journey. Well, did you see that there was like that 50th anniversary of the Hey Hey Saturday thing yesterday? I personally didn't watch it. I find that show extremely offensive. But it was on TV every weekend unless we were going to church on Saturday night. That mentality is what we grew up with. So how are, how are people going to treat people that are neurodiverse well if Australian society at the time was just a lot different than it is now, thank God. But like, Did you see earlier in the year Kamal came out and made a statement I, about how he was treated on Hey Hey at Saturday and all of the overt racism that he put up with through that time? I love Kamal. The thing that made me really, really uncomfortable, even as a kid, was how Molly Meldrum was put up, like some of the things like John Blackman said, like, it was just brutal. But, like, I think that definitely that era, that informed the people of that I went to high school with. I mean, it's not right, but it's now made me kind of understand it a bit better. Mm. It's also possibly why I asked you about today because I've been thinking a lot to myself that if you don't stick your head up above the parapet from time to time and do stuff like this, then the society that, like, you know, my son or other people's kids, it's going to be the same. Yeah, exactly right. Well, as it turns out, I think we grew up not far away from each other. You were in oh, West really? I was in Mount Gambia. Oh, really? Dunkeld. So Dunkeld, yeah. A yeah. lot of the time. So my grandparents lived in Dunkeld and all my family and, like, our family farms and stuff, like between Dunkeld and Glen Thompson. But I also grew up in Gippsland. Yeah, wow. That's actually really close. <laughs> yeah. The kind of culture that you're talking about, particularly through the 90s when we're coming up, is very relatable. I think that's why you and I get along because we're coming from a similar place. We are and we aren't, and that's weird and interesting in itself. So when we corresponded about doing this interview, you sent me a couple of things that you'd like to talk about, and one of the things you said related to our professional relationship as two neurodiverse yes, people. 
Yeah. And two neurodiverse people who were not out when we met and when we started working together and who've yes. both been coming to terms with where we're at in our different ways through this journey and then being able to connect on that level as well, which has been really awesome for both of us, I think. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. How have you interpreted the evolution of our professional relationship and what that's meant for you yeah, as a neurodiverse student coming through the university? I left uni round about the turn of the millennium and then I was away from uni for about 15 years and I got to a point where I come from like a domestic violence background, like a pretty severe domestic violence background and I got to a point where I realised I was going to be dead or dead inside if I didn't make a change. So I direct applied to La Trobe and decided if I die, I die by reaching out and getting an education because I'm probably going to die anyway, which is a terrible place to start your educational journey, but it's where I started mine. So I enrolled in a BA and I was trudging through that and it was pretty horrific at times and I wasn't getting a lot out of it depending on the subject but I was just getting it done, whittling away like one subject at a time. And how we first crossed paths is you were an elective. Oh, it's online. I can do that. (laughs) So, yeah, I wasn't expecting a lot. I was expecting potentially to fail because it wasn't from my disciplines at all. And I'd never taken any kind of politics or similar. So, I was sort of keeping an eye on the census date, thinking, oh, yeah, well, we'll see how we go. But it worked out much differently than I thought it would. (laughs) So I can still remember the first time I met you, coming from a domestic violence background is like it's really full on. And, like, I remember the first time I met you, I was incredibly nervous because I could not be in a room alone with a male person at that point. None of my friends were male that were under the age of about 70. Like one reason I go lawn bowling is because I'm hanging out with people that aren't a threat to me. So I think for me the fact that we managed to develop a working relationship and that you're a guy (laughs) says a lot. (laughs) Like. To me, I just perceived everybody that was male at that point as a potential threat, purposely didn't dress up, purposely didn't wear makeup, purposely didn't try to draw attention to myself in any way whatsoever. I think I was very lucky too, like that that happened because I'm incredibly timid, right, because of all of those experiences. And I think that... Being that timid, if I'd had a different teacher at that point that wasn't neurodiverse, I think that they wouldn't have had that empathy to kind of go, there's something slightly bigger going on here. And if I'd failed at uni or been thrown out, I would probably be dead by now. Like I've managed to forge a life for myself that's, I've done incredible things. I've gone through victims of crime tribunal and stood up and told my story. And 
well, to me, that's incredible. But, like, I've done things, me and my son have a totally different life that just wasn't imaginable to me five years ago. I get interviewed every four years or so because I'm a former warder for state, like graduate outcomes for care leavers because there's only something very, very small amount of us actually get a uni degree. In 2016, I was interviewed and I was a totally different person than I am now and I was interviewed a couple of weeks ago and they've still got that interview and were talking to me like, you've gone from there to there, like what the hell's happened to you? Yeah, it's been a weird journey. (laughs) Just to backtrack, Mm -hmm. how would you describe your neurodiversity? Because obviously every neurodiverse person is different. Everyone's neurology is is slightly different and expresses in different ways. How would you describe yours? I know some people don't like this phrase because, you know, that there's a big, broad spectrum of people that are neurodiverse and some people it's really a hindrance to. But for me, in many ways, it is like a superpower. It's also at times the most exasperating thing under the sun. So I spent six weeks earlier this year where I basically did nothing but move from my bed to my couch to having a panic attack to, like, I was nauseous for six weeks, like, unable to eat properly for six weeks. Like, my my biggest achievement for those six weeks was basically I managed to, like, shower and get dressed and continue looking after my child. So... It can be the best thing and it can be the worst thing. But how do I describe it? I think I'm just beginning to find words to describe it now that aren't negative and wound up in negativity. Yeah, and in talking about that six-week period, I think neurotypical people don't understand the extraordinary level of resilience and power that it takes to sustain yourself through a period like that. There's actually great power in being able to get through that. Well, I'd just come out of having the flu, and I've never had ordinary flu. I was so sick, a $100 note could have blown past me and I wouldn't have tried to stop it. You know, you could have. it would have been thousands and I, I couldn't have moved. And so I was at my weakest, and then this came back and... I think one of the exasperating things is sometimes I seem tempted to take two steps forward and then five steps back and then eventually I get a surge of energy and I'm able to do something or other again and then I take five steps back. But all the time there's this voice that's going on inside my head. Like today, I've done 98% of an assignment but the, the topic sentences of each paragraph They don't link. You know how it's supposed to be like a mini thesis in between? Yeah, it ain't coherent. So, (laughs) like, I feel sorry for the person marking it. Not that it's a great effort, but it's an effort, you know. And I had to send an email and basically say, so, look, this is, like, what's going on. I've got this 98% finished assignment. I know that it's due in two days. And that's plenty of time to write 400 words. But I don't know if my brain can cope with that. 
and you don't know what ex- like response you're going to get to those emails, like ever. I mean, I'm starting to feel a little bit more comfortable that I'm going to get a better response. It's it's mind blowing shifting disciplines because I'm now in a position where almost all the time the staff are writing back things where it's not like well tough shit you know you know when it's due (laughs) like but at the same time there's this horrible situation where you go I'm letting the entire team down like they've been more than reasonable they've been more than polite nice like get it together (laughs) like what are you doing this for (laughs) so yeah (laughs) yeah that's the conversation we've had (laughs) on several occasions isn't it just you you feeling in that space and me trying to reassure you that it's okay, we've got you back. And I when you're so. when your experience hasn't always been that, then I, I understand the, the hesitation. I've also noticed like other staff members in our discipline that contacted me, like we were well, I'd contacted them, but we were conversing. And they actually said, I now kind of have a better understanding of your world. And mm. I went, okay (laughs) but like COVID has brought a level of like you know but there's been other parts of it where I don't know if your family's been but like I have had to avoid social media a lot like especially Facebook people complaining and whining and the politics and the divisiveness and just over the stupidest things I (laughs) It's all too much to process for me. Yeah, it's an overwhelming moment, isn't it? COVID and the lockdowns, the restrictions, the discussions over vaccines, social distancing, the whole nine, the precarity, the loneliness, all of these things swirling together, they're impacting on people in different ways. But it's turned politics on its head and it's it's unanchored people. Yeah. And, and you can really see that in the divisiveness at the moment and the... Uh, and the anger yes yes and that anger like I watched one friend who I've known since I was 11 and they've always been socialist kind of leaning and they've basically got sucked into this and I've watched them go into the alt-right with horror like some of the stuff that they're sharing and I've gone do I unfriend him like where do I go to from here? And at first I actually thought it was a mental health-like issue that he was experiencing a breakdown. And then I realised what was going on and witnessing that was one of the worst things that I've ever seen. So fortunately for me, I went the opposite direction, I think. Like I was saying before, I'd come from like a domestic violence situation. So None of my opinions were my my own, none. Like how I voted, where I went to church, that I even went to church, like everything that I thought wasn't my thoughts. I didn't have my own thoughts or opinions or freedoms or anything else. I used to think it was normal to get like 20, 25 phone calls a day to like monitor where I was and what I was doing. So it's been like pretty epic changing from that like and to giving yourself permission to actually think differently or think for yourself 
And I now realize that for most of my adult life, I just didn't really have to think for myself. I didn't even know what I thought, <laughs> like, you know, because I'd never really examined it. So I think part of the reason why I've been so slow at producing work has been I don't even know what my argument is. Like I've been told many times my argument in work is like reasonably needs developing and it's like, well, I don't know what I think. And it's a little bit intimidating that most of the staff are probably around my age group. So it's like, why hasn't this fully formed person that's an adult like started to like think about this stuff a little bit earlier than now? I, I understand that. Being able to find your own voice is part of this journey. I've had to do it. And it's really hard when you've taken shit earlier in your life. You know, the instinct is to keep your head down and stay out of the way and stay out of trouble. To be able to find your voice and stick your head over the parapet, as you said, that's a huge act. It takes extraordinary courage and extraordinary power to do that. But it's still panic-inducing. Like, you've seen me when I've actually done well at stuff and imploded at my own success, <laughs> which is not a fun moment. <laughs> With me, there's I'll go and do a class. There's things you, you don't see and other people don't see the private side of me coping with having my head over the parapet and being a semi-public figure. If I go to a public event, if I do a presentation or even if I just teach some classes and lectures, after that I'm absolutely physically and emotionally wrecked and I need downtime, alone time to recharge. The thing about COVID that stuffed me. You don't get that. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, go on, go on. Follow that thought. That's interesting. Oh, that's what killed me. That's what led to me six weeks of like, you know, because I'm now, like normally I used to have space, some time alone to listen to my loud music or do my own thing and just wipe everything out and now I don't have that like I'm, ne I'm never alone like 24 7 so that's pretty panic inducing right there yeah and neurodivergent people need that don't we we need that space to be able to recharge because let's face it we're living all the time in a hostile sensory and social environment that space is integral to our health and well-being uh, to be able to recharge. And if you don't have it, you can't keep burning the candle at both ends without that recharge time and not crash at some point, not, not shut yep. down. I think my body just went, right, okay, it's now rest time, whether you like it or not. So I've had to, in that period of time, start seeing the therapist that the court awarded me when I became a victim of crime. I've not seen them in ages because I was essentially deemed healed, you know, and coping quite well and doing well. And so to have to contact them was a bit like of a pain in the butt, but like to also to also need to. God, it made me angry. But then I've realised like every day just about I'm having a nap or I'm having a shower at lunchtime, you know, but I'm getting through this. Somehow, slowly, I'm getting through this. And other people are finding it tough. I don't know about you, Ben, but I reckon neurotypical people may actually be finding this more difficult than we are. 
just based on things I'm seeing on social media about people complaining about seemingly petty crap, like maybe it's actually harder for them than us. I don't know. I suspect that might be true. Like for us, being alone, being isolated a bit more, that's part of our everyday existence. And that, you know, we need that as well. As I said, we need that space. But if you get your energy and recharge from being social and being around other people and you don't have that, like I get it, it, you know, it would have the same kind of detrimental impact on your well-being as putting us in a really hostile sensory environment. I've gone through a few graduations at La Trobe now and every time I've had to be walked across the stage by my support person and, like, that whole environment is just not okay for me. So, yeah, you don't realise until, like, all this is, this pause of life has made me kind of realise wow, it really is a hostile environment. Wow, it really could use some improving. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. You know, we've got a neurodiverse mentor and a neurodiverse mentee. There's no guidebook. There's no real support. There's no information or anything else. And the onus is kind of on me, but kind of on you as well. But I think that a whole big bunch of equity stuff is the onus is on the person, which is like person-centred or person-orientated, which, you know, we're supposed to contact the staff if our LAP, you know, needs to be sent or whatever. If you're the sort of person that suffers from anxiety or panic or You've never put words to things like most of my friends, my closest friends, and I've got, I'm blessed with quite a number of them. They don't even know that there's anything different about me. One of them said to me not that long ago, oh, you seem to overanalyze everything from every different angle and think about it, but we just go, oh, that's, that's just clear. And I was a little bit offended, but I suppose that's a nice way of looking at it too to just be just clear. So I don't really publicly out myself, not because of, well, I guess it's fear as well. And also like once you're out, you're out. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. I think also it's like I'm an intrinsically private person that likes to spend chunks of time alone and processing and listening to my music or whatever I'm doing. Having to tell people, it's infuriating it's like you have to to approach someone for like I did just saying look I think my essay is going to be late or crap or both (laughs) like to have to do that is just so difficult but I do understand that it's probably necessary otherwise no essay would ever be due anytime for anybody what would come out of this I suppose would be that a set of like guidelines or responsibilities I mean there's three people that are in this like relationship there's not just like you and me like staff and student but like there's the university too and I'm paying them a buttload of money over the course of my lifetime to be there whilst they don't like guidebooks it would be kind of nice if some of the onus was shifted a little bit 
you know, that they had some kind of checkpoints that actually said, hey, staff member, are you doing all right dealing with all of this stuff? I think that they should go, hey, student, how are you doing? You know, is everything working for you? Could we be of assistance? Do you need us to talk to the teacher? Because you can't at the moment because you're on the ground, like feeling sick. But, yeah, you're right about the, the three points of contact. Like there's you, there's me, but then there's the university. And, you know, you're paying the university and expect support in return. Yeah. What I can provide is also shaped by the constraints of the university and the resources available as well. And so it's, a, it's an enormous mediating factor in the relationship. I think overall, like, because I'm on a crap load of, like, places where I represent team neurodiversity, but I'm on every available like that. They always come to me and ask, oh, do you want to be on this forum or that forum or whatever? They want to help. They're so positive and want to help. They don't want people like me to have this experience. but. I think COVID's the closest many of them have got to any kind of understanding whatsoever. And I still don't think that they do. It's just tone deaf a lot of the time. And it's not meaning to be, but people are very eager to help. They'd love to help, but there's some sort of blockage between that desire and true understanding that enacts change. And I hope that in the next few years, like that, is resolved because I think it will mean a lot for staff and students alike. Well, the people that work across the institution are generally good people. Yes. At a human level, the human empathy and connection is there. Yeah. But in their roles, when you work in a large institution, and it happens to me too, you're not the person anymore. You're the institutional creature. You function by a different set of rules that are sometimes inherently dehumanising to you and the people that you have to deal with as well. And getting yeah. through that is the real hard part. Yeah, and I don't know that we can ever adequately explain like that every single thing affects us. So like the week that there was cuts to the uni, okay, well, I can't function this week. I've actually wondered before, and this might sound a little ridiculous, there needs to be some kind of team that actually, you know how like on the press conferences for COVID and there's like someone who is in the corner and they're doing Auslan. I have wondered whether we need like somebody who like breaks news to us, institutional changes, restructuring, whatever, like in a, in a more us friendly environment that would benefit everyone <laughs> I think <not laughs> but I don't honestly I don't think large institutions are capable of that level of care because no. they're just not designed that way that's not how they work well I see myself as a paying customer right and customers have rights so I know it's a big institution but I hold out hope <laughs> you've got lots more leverage than the people that work in it as the well, paying customer, which is really sad, but unfortunately that's how it is. I think, though, also in reality I'm probably only of about 400 out of 40,000 paying customers that are currently there. So my buying power, as it were, isn't all that high, <sighs> which is what it is. 
So, Claire, you recently won the La Trobe University Excellence Academy inaugural art competition for a poem you wrote entitled I Was. Now, I, I thought this was a fantastic poem. I shared it all around social media and it got a great reaction among people who commented on the share. What is it that you were saying about your various experiences at university through this poem? Because it was a really powerful piece and it probably speaks to some of the things you've already just talked about. But do you want to expand on that? The last 12 months haven't been that fab and I haven't produced that much work. But one day I came across a post that was asking for entrance and that what does inclusion mean to you was the theme. And I was so angry in that moment based upon what we were just talking about, like about some of the limitations and the impact on health and well-being and family life and everything that I kind of rage typed for about an hour and my intention was not to win or even get an honourable mention. It was literally so that somebody would open it up and go, huh, maybe this was tone deaf. And then I didn't realise that it was actually judged by people that outside of the our community that that was actually a couple of like sculptors or curators or whatever experts in that field so maybe that had something to do with it but yeah that was really awful finding out I'd won I had a full-blown panic attack but afterwards I actually got some emails from people and people sharing and stuff and a couple of comments in a meeting that I'm a part of every month and people going, oh, my God, I've just put put two and two together that that was you. And it was really lovely, but it's not at all what I was expecting. We'll play a voiceover version of the poem now. So Claire will record a voiceover version of the poem. We'll put a bit of backing music and we'll play it now. I was... I was bubbly, brilliant, intrinsically youthful. I got A's without trying. I blew minds effortlessly. I cared not about anything. Permanency was lacking. When invited to dine with vice-chancellors, I declined. I was bubbly, brilliant, intrinsically useful. I gave two shits about what would become of me. Life was a constant precipice of fear and degradation. Goodbye to university, to scholarships, to life. 15 years waiting, busy, busy. Hello to university, to scholarships, to life. Returning much older, rounder, wiser, saggy, unnoticed. I no longer get guys cruising for a bruising by that girl. I no longer get help eye contact or special attention. I get pitied, ignored, blamed, shamed. I get called stupid, oh so stupid, an irredeemably damaged, deranged fighter. Irrelevant, vain, my outcome is set by the size of my ass and the pity, the pity, the pity. I am the awkward, silences, the frazzled staff. I am no longer a genius, a vice-chancellor's scholar, delightful and eccentric. No, now I live in a world where I am a commodity, 
an answer to inclusivity. A world where idiotic questions such as what does diversity mean are competitions. I'm suddenly one of Stella Young's hallmark moments. I am the warrior in an ersatz reality, signaling virtuosity and compassion. I'm not real. I'm plastic. I'm plastic. I'm plastic. I'm plastic. I'm plastic. I'm loudly pushing past expectations and limits, quantified only by the dice I hold in my hand and my mind. I am driven by the realisation of confinement, of being the other, the unnoticed, the forgotten, the middle-aged feminist in chains, has given me a quiet comfort, a glass prism, casting colours. I am colours, transfused with light, colours which are thicker than air, holier than water, better to breathe, walk, fly, dance to. Fragile me is long forgotten, perfect me is now. They are not ready for me, those who ask for answers to the unanswerable. Who reasons a competition, a learning module, a theme can erase a day, a decade, a mark or a due date. If I arise in 15 more years, will you be ready or will I be in charge? But... I'm your zip in your due date, your crumpling ambition. I am the volume of trauma of myopic decisions. I am your accumulated lack of knowledge, your two shits given. I am your clown, your collaborator, your meek smiling sycophant. I am your vice, your passport to meet your quotas. I am your second, third or final choice, your two shits given. I am your master avenger, your disability hire. I sing for my supper, compliant and bribed. I am the rude girl for whom you make excuses, wondering how I got a seat at your table. I am the staff member's pride, their abject horror. I am their best, worst, their wine subscription. I am their workload, their fancies floating ephemerally before sharp fiscal reposts. I was bubbly, brilliant, intrinsically youthful. I gave two shits about what would become of us. I won. Is there anything else you want to say about the poem? I didn't personally think it was that powerful. I've now started to change my opinion on it. It was more, it was just driven from rage. Because I don't know, I don't want to be one of those people, and I often am, where people will come up and go, you're so inspiring, you're so like this or that. Like I I gave a lecture a few years ago about what it was like to be a ward of the state, and that was a good experience, like talking to people and having people come up and go, like, well done on pursuing the tertiary education and stuff. But I guess I'd like to be in a world where I'm just normal. Like I'm not someone where they go, oh, wow. Or I've often got the comment of, oh, oh, you're neurodiverse. I didn't really actually pick up on that. Like you must be only like slightly like, you know, you're really well functioning and it's like you don't understand 
every time I've left a 50th birthday party or a 40th birthday party early, it's not because my tooth hurts. It's because I can't be around all these people. It's not, I don't avoid every social gathering or thing because I'm a snob. It's because I can't do it. Just because I don't like broadcasting neon on my on my head that, hello, neurodiverse, and this is exactly what's wrong with me, it doesn't mean that it's not there. One thing that angers me is what Stella Young called hallmark moments. And I've had well-meaning people come up and say, well done. Oh, wow, like you've done so well with your degrees or, or like how they've introduced me. I don't want to be introduced like that. I want to be introduced as, hey, this is Claire Kearns. This is like my student, my friend, my cousin, whatever the hell. <laughs> like not, this is the most inspiring person that ever happened. I don't want that. I just want to be, I want an education and a chance at a life that's the same like chance that everybody else has. Maybe in another 10 years, I'll turn around and go, woohoo, yeah, I am awesome. But right now, I just want to be on an equal playing field. So yeah, obviously, it takes me a moment to gather my thoughts before I say anything too. Yeah, some, yeah, yeah. Some yeah, people find that really yeah, they think I'm ignoring them, but actually, no, it's I'm processing. And yeah. and yeah. Oh, what was I going to say? <laughs> I'm having the plague moment. Uh, yeah, what you're saying, when we put our heads over the parapet to talk about our experiences, it's not that we're looking for praise. That's not at oh. all the point, is it? It's like there's something not right here. We need you to listen and to change. Yes, that's it. I wasn't going to share my poem with anybody because, like, I thought it was going to look like humble brag posts and stuff. But I've now realised that I need to. You know, I still haven't told close friends some of the situations for me, so this is going to be a bit of an awkward share of a podcast, <laughs> I think. But, you know, maybe some people will go, oh, so that makes sense. But the way I kind of see it is, would you walk into a room and go, hey, I've had prostate cancer or, oh, I've got hemorrhoids or, hey, I've got this awesome ingrown toenail. Like, why would I share my medical details? Why should I have to? Why isn't every situation set up in a way that is a little bit more inclusive where there are chill out zones throughout campus? Or there's like a like a bursary fund that might help people like me actually get to campus. Like that, that'd be awesome. Like I'd like to see the campus again. Like just little inclusions that could just be woven into the fabric would be really good. <laughs> These roles that you have sort of representing neurodiverse students in various bodies through the university. Do you feel like you're just there to tick the diversity box? I do sometimes, much to their regret, sometimes. In all the time I've been doing it, though, the only thing that I've actually managed to do of a concrete nature is in the enrolment process, there's a teeny tiny checkbox that says, I cannot contact you, equity department. Please contact me. Because I went the first two years unable to contact equity. 
No, I do think I am like the token inclusion mm. and not the, the first person that they go to. And I've actually started deleting emails sometimes, giving myself permission to do that. And I still do it, even though it's the crappest thing in the world to put myself out there. This week I've got something coming up with the executive committee. Somehow the topic of the LMS came up and I basically went, well, the LMS is like hostile to neurodiverse people. The whole system, like of how the websites work, hostile, the colours, hostile, like none of this works for us. And like the Zoom meeting we're on right now doesn't work for us. And they're like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm like, look, this is going to take too long to like describe. I'm going to send you a list. So I sent them off a list and after the meeting and they wrote back, wow, thank you so much. I never actually considered some of these. I'm actually going to incorporate it into not just meetings for this, but like meetings for everything. And I was like, you know what happens to us? We, And that's the empathy thing. Like I even feel it when I interrupt you like because you know how it hurts because what happens to me in meetings is there's a pause in my brain which you may not be picking up on the fact that I pause but this is a topic I'm passionate about it's like so when the pause happens there's always an eager beaver in every tutorial that knows everything about international relations and I'll be halfway through a sentence and someone will go blah 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 and by the time, if someone goes, oh, Claire, what were you saying again? By then it's gone. I've no idea. One of my key things was that I said, you've got to understand that we might have a different speaking way, that that pause, and you might literally be watching like, you know, tick, 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 tick happen. You've got to give us time because coming back to us two minutes later, five minutes later, it ain't going to work. Our short-term term memories, it's not going to work. What actually has to happen is the eager beaver needs to be gone one moment, let the other person finish. But I think our world is so successful. People are lawyers and doctors or whatever, biomed students and stuff, and I've ha- had to integrate with some of them And that whole culture is scramble to the top, survival of the fittest, like alpha will win. But that doesn't work for us. (laughs) So we're never going to get to be more confident or socially less awkward if we can't speak. Coming back to another thing that you raised when you initially proposed this, you talked about we're two people, even though we have a lot in common, we're coming from very different backgrounds in terms of our politics. Yeah. So when I first met you and took your subject, I thought, okay, so this guy's probably like left-leaning or an environmentalist of some kind. And then where I was at that point, like I'd I'd formed none of my own opinions, right, but I'd, because of coming from domestic violence, had basically had other people's opinions thrust on me. So I'd basically been like a National Party voter for like the last 20 years. (laughs) And 
totally opposite from you. And that was really awkward because it was like, well, I don't have any opinions of my own, but the ones that I've been spouting, a good little Stepford wife, has basically been something where I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be accepted. And so that made me even more, can I converse with this person and what can I converse about and how much can I converse? So, yeah, that that was really weird. (laughs) But it's actually an important lesson more outside of just like an individual relationship is that two people can actually get along that have very, very different views. And I think it's really important at the moment I think it's a necessary conversation to have. Like, I mean, you're probably more environmentalist and I was like the sort of person that goes, you know, lawn bowling and like sporting shooting and I can't imagine you operating weaponry. (laughs) No offence. That was very awkward but also really good that it happened because I think I would have gone insane in this environment if I hadn't have learned that lesson that I don't have to have everything in common. There's no such thing as like a perfect relationship between people. I don't have to fear being socially awkward because I sit here fidgeting with my hair tied the whole time we're talking where it might look like I'm not actually paying attention. But having... A relationship where you don't have everything in common is powerful because of that reason for like a neurodiverse person because you realise perfection don't matter, you know. I might fall through the door, whatever I'm doing, but I'll get there. Just reflecting on that for me, like because I've always felt a little different, like even when I'm in a team, I never really feel wholeheartedly part of a team. Like I don't fully embrace everything about it. So I often find full-fledged commitment to any idea or to any in-group. It feels a bit cultish to me because I don't feel fully part of it just by nature of who I am. And I see that as an advantage at times like this because you don't get sucked into cults and we're surrounded by all kinds of cults on all sides of politics right now. I think in some ways that we came from different sides of politics to start with and different ideas was actually quite good. I've personally made a journey where we're probably much more aligned in our political and faith beliefs and social justice. I mean, my social justice was probably already over there, but I've definitely magically transformed a long way. But I think to start with it was a benefit because it makes it easier to converse with someone sometimes that you don't have things in common with because you can keep that person at a distance. Maybe that's something that your typical people could learn from us. That you know, maybe our social awkwardness is actually a benefit. What I would like to see out of this conversation is Minimum of someone else thinking, huh, it's not just me. Or even better, something changes like that makes it easier for either us or some other people. But minimum, someone just go, huh, so 
I'm not the only person that thinks they're a doofus. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. This is cool. Oh, no, that's okay. Edge Dwellers Cafe. Inclusion is an ongoing practice, not a box to be ticked. In preparation for this podcast interview, when Claire and I were discussing what kind of backing soundtrack that we'd have underneath her recital of her award-winning poem, Claire suggested that a rolling thunderstorm would convey the rage that she felt while she was writing the poem. That rage is an emotion that all neurodiverse people feel at one time or another as a product of the frustration of trying to navigate and exist within social structures that are inherently hostile. The genius of Claire's writing and advocacy work is her ability to communicate that anger and frustration with power in a way that can't be ignored. A reminder that if you'd like to support the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast, please click on the like and subscribe buttons and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. You know how the algorithms work. Help bring more listeners into the Edge Dwellers Cafe. You can support the podcast materially with a one-off PayPal contribution. This financial support helps to cover the costs of hosting, production, editing and research for the podcast, and it's very much appreciated. The Edge Dwellers Cafe Patreon page continues to be offline for a while while under renovation, but do stay tuned for updates about new offerings for Patreon subscribers when that's up and running again. Thanks as always for joining me. I'm taking a break over January for summer rest and recharge, but I'll be back again in February with all new conversations around politics, environment and mental health. This is Ben Habib signing off from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. All the best for the holiday season. Stay safe and much love.